House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Okay, and we're back with Barry McCallum, and um, pleasure to have you here. How are you doing today? Alan, I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, but the big question, I guess, is how are you doing? <laughs> Actually, overall, pretty good. I, You know, I'm pretty happy with things. Uh, you know, a little bit disheartened from, uh, like, this is our month of the JFK and RFK sort of um, conspiracies and, and, and uh, research. Um, yeah, a little, little bit disheartening. I'm... I'm you know, sort of sad from all the different uh, discussions I've been having and uh, evidence I've I've heard. And um, I always sort of looked at the time of the '60s as a great time, and uh, with uh, a lot of good people and doing good things. And uh, it's kind of a uh, disheartening to hear some of the things that went on. It really is, and when you turn it over and you see the downside, the dark underside. Uh, like I mentioned, uh, we have uh, uh, two options on movies for my first book, and we're working on a book of treatments, different ways to approach the story of what happened, not the story, the history of what happened. And um, it, it becomes, uh, you search for a title, and right now the working title is Murder Horrific. So, like you were saying, the 60s had a lot of really real progress but at the same time it's dark underside is um and it's part of the story history uh, but it is awful it's just awful yeah yeah i, I that's it's just sort of uh i i think i because uh, i was uh, i was young of course very young and and it just sort of seemed like an ideal time like you had you know you could have faith in people especially when you're young you know, you don't really understand politics or any of that sort of um, ideas. But I just sort of um, had a lot of faith, even in people like uh, not only you know Kennedy and the things you hear and the good things you hear when you're young, right? Um, but also even Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, which you know I I, <laughs> I think it sort of shapes your foundation a little. Is sort of where I'm at. That is so true, and that is why uh, many people are really defending him beyond redemption. I mean, there's no way to really defend him if you look into the, the case, listen to the insiders, know the man for what he was. There's no way you can um, um, justify um, any praise for the man. But again, this is a, this is part of the history that that I've been able to hear from people, other insiders. And it really lays it out, and it does. Uh, it answers a lot of your um, what you were just you know expressing your concerns. I mean, it was a time of Camelot, right. and along comes this horrendous murder, horrendous assassination, and you stop and you look, and what I w was able to bring out uh, and to realize was something the Warren Commission said almost on its first day. We are not a banana republic. Well, what that meant was our government would never be involved in a coup d'etat. Nobody with the government would do something like that. We're too good. 
What they didn't know is what I was able to bring out. Back in Texas, there was this fellow named Ed Clark, the secret boss of Texas, the only man Johnson trusted. And he had a banana republic in Texas where he was running the show completely. What he wanted, he got. Um, And so your perception would have been accurate as far as the national scene. But when the national scene bowed down to uh, this product of uh, a banana republic, well, it was inexcusable. Yeah, yeah, certainly was. Uh, just yeah. Uh, so and you know to defend them, I don't know what they're defending. I I can't defend someone like that. And not only that, I've also uh, you know in in all the research, you know, I hear all the uh, tapes of Johnson and uh, with Hoover and all the different tapes that they have now of, and it's just uh, it it's it's almost shocking to hear <laughs> how he was. It, it really is, and a lot of people, uh, and again, I go back to the fog of history, they'll turn to these tapes and say, oh, listen, LBJ never admitted to killing the president. <laughs> well, he's not going to. No. But the bigger point was the tapes didn't start until after, you know, uh, Dallas, and when he moved into the Oval, the Oval Office. Um, so they're going to leave that out. But if you listen carefully... One thing about LBJ was he could compartmentalize things better than anyone. And, for example, there is one tape where he's talking with some friends about getting some money out of some counties back in Texas. And Jonathan said, well, we can't talk about that anymore. It's being yeah. recorded. <laughs> yeah. So he knew what to say and what not to say. I mean, what he, but what he could admit and not admit uh, is, is a story in itself, uh, and it goes back many years before he, he ever became president. Um, you can't say it's it's funny. It's not at all. It's no. just really strange that he could um, do some things he did. Like, for example, he admitted there was a conspiracy, and that was kind of a challenge. Yeah, there was a conspiracy. My side pulled it off. See if you can crack it. It is so well covered up. You'll never find out, but there was a conspiracy. Explain it is impossible, but again, the, the man could compartmentalize and and even talk against himself. Yeah. So what do you think... Um it came from for him like where how do you how do you describe his background i mean he was from texas it is really well described by several historians and robert cairo is is probably the best one on those early years uh those years before he was elected to the senate in that stolen election back in 1948 um he was always compelled uh, to move forward. His father had gotten into bankruptcy, and his mother had been so disappointed, and she had really pushed her son, Johnson, to do the best he could and not to make any mistakes. And this, your your mother's voice is a powerful voice. But he always had this ambition, but at the same time, he was able to manipulate all through his career uh, a victory here, a victory there, even though it wasn't a victory. I mean, for example, he stole uh, being uh, 
speaker for the uh, the, the small house, uh, the, the representatives' aides all there, they called them back then, secretaries. Uh, and he manipulated that vote. He manipulated the vote to get elected in uh, college, for which he was suspended and spent a year uh, off doing um, some sort of public service. Um, he was elected to Congress with a minority uh, vote. I mean, he had 37% of the vote back in 1938. What happened, the congressman died all of a sudden, and they had to call a special election, and it was set up to be, you know, high man wins. Well, he didn't win that one. <laughs> and then 48 comes along, and he steals that election. So he had this overwhelming ambition, um, almost existential, in the sense that whatever I want, I mean, it's, it, it, it's the center of existential theory. I think that you get what you want. You really get out there and pull it off. Um, Nietzsche did that. And let me, don't let me wander too much here, but <laughs> Kierkegaard was the opposite side. He was so committed to his religion that he would do anything he believed God wanted. <laughs> that would be the guy who follows the law, right? Yeah. Like John Kennedy. On the other hand, you had Lyndon Johnson, who had absolutely no parameters of what was right or wrong. And it all comes out of this growing up years, um, which were tempered again. Uh, Alan, let me just add this too. He grew up in a time when, you know, slap leather, uh, six shooters were carried around strapped to your side in Texas uh, when they had the Ku Klux Klan almost electing. A, a governor, when you had um, lynching going on, uh, I mean, you know, no respect for human life, really. Uh, so this murderous trend, this murderous thinking, was part of what he grew up with, and he and he lived it out. Hmm. You know, I, uh, and in in talking to people this month, uh, one of them is Professor Corner. John Corner, he sort of described him as having quite a few mental illnesses. Um, I, just you know, like uh, he was uh, sociopath is what what he called him, and uh, um, paranoia and uh, bipolar. Um, yes, yes, and yes, and let me explain that when he came back from. Washington, when he couldn't stay in and, and pulled out of the uh, election in 1968, he went into deep depression. And through the law firm, uh, we hired a psychiatrist. Uh, now, this happened before I joined the law firm. Um, or, well, I, let, me, let me put it this way before I was a partner, and I found out about it later. But he had this psychiatrist who was trying something new and different, and it was working against suicide thoughts, trying to bring him around. Uh, the last time I saw Johnson, it was when they dedicated the uh, LBJ Library in Austin, and he was there under one of the founds talking to Ed Clark, the only man he trusted, and my law partner. And I walked over to visit with him for a minute, and you could see that um, the evening all the congratulations and, and, and praise that was given Johnson had helped. But he quickly went back into it, and two things we know for sure happened. 
One is after he went to the inauguration of Nixon, he came back home and started smoking. And even his own daughter said, you're going to kill yourself. And he said, it's my life. He had reached a, a breaking point. I mean, people reached this point. And he was so depressed from everything else. But another thing happened in his mental makeup um, that we know about. Uh, a lot of it we can talk about from his off, you know, observing him and all. But what he did is important, too. He became a Christadelphian. Now, this is a group that believes the Jews are going to inherit the world. And um, if the world should end, it would be okay because the Jewish race and, and Jewish religion, the Jewish people, would be there to um, to take over. And this kind of thinking is millennial-type thinking, where it's okay for the end of the world. And it's part of his makeup at, at this late uh, stage in his life. Uh, and he has gotten away. He had, and, and, and what they're trying to do is cover it up. That he did become a Christadelphian in the last in his last years. It was something his uncle had been and his father had, had been. Um, um, it was kind of a you know an offbeat religion there. Uh, but to my mind, you can interpret that as being suicidal and committed to heaving the country. It was that awful. And so, yes, he can be a sociopath. He can be, you know, unconcerned about legal standards in every which way. Um, and again, it comes back to what I mentioned earlier, an existential belief that what I want to do is what's right, and that's that. Don't get in my way. And he had that. I had in my book, a, uh, the first book, the Blood, Money, and Power book, um, uh, I had identified the... Um, um, penthouse records and these were records the law firm kept up in the penthouse of the bank building we were in and Clark had put them behind a fence <laughs> it was strange usually lawyers you know can see any kind of records they want to and we could have seen those but we had to ask and it was recorded it was about the only thing we worried too much about but if those records could be recovered I think you'd find in there how the firm hired the psychiatrist and what he reported back. Of course, it's privileged because uh, he would be an employee of the lawyer and the privilege would apply. Um, so to get back to and, and, and try and answer your question, I'm looking at things I can identify uh, to be evidence of the state of mind he had, of things he had done. But we need those records, and um, if they could be recovered, I think it would really answer the question. Right, yeah, it would help. And and so actually, um, I, I didn't do this at the beginning, and I should have. Um, so for the listeners that don't know who you are or haven't done the research or any reading about it, um, uh, describe actually some, some of your background for them so they, they understand that, where you're coming from. Oh, yes, and uh, I was a lawyer and partner with Ed Clark, uh, who I mentioned earlier was the secret boss of Texas and Johnson's only trusted friend. I went to law school in Texas, uh, ended up with a, with good grades and a good record on the bar exam. I guess part of the story there was my father-in-law was dean of the law school. And if you remember the paper chase, which I believe was a 1960s movie, <laughs> it was kind of what it was like having your 
having the dean as your father-in-law. But he was a great man. He really was, and he set a standard for me. Um, but there I was um, in war in New. Uh, let me get this straight. In Austin, uh, finishing up law school and had a child, my wife and I. And we had our first son, and it was time to get a job. And I took a job in Washington uh, with the Federal Power Commission, which regulates oil and gas. Very important to Texas. And Clark hired me. Uh, when I finished uh, service, I agreed to in Washington, and uh, that was in 1965. So it was two years or a year and a half after the assassination, and um, immediately got into uh, the legal life in Austin. Had a um, had my own had my own TV show, The Law and You which was okay because it was right before the NFL game of the week <laughs> and uh, uh, had some pretty good cases. Um, uh, blocked the highway in San Antonio at the Supreme Court level. Um, but the, with the law firm, it, it became pretty obvious once I saw and was told that Clark had planned the assassination, something I didn't believe, but one of my partners said it. And, and and what's said in a law firm is is uh, sacrosanct. It's it's you know what we know about what we are doing and did, and I gradually drifted away from it. And, and at one point there, they asked me to represent um, this guy named Oscar Wyatt, and there was no way I could do that. I had been representing some other clients on the opposite side. But they wanted me to do it, and they said anything Leon Jaworski wants, we do. Uh, of course, Jaworski would be later prosecutor, and he would also be um, involved in the Nixon case. And he would be in charge of the Texas investigation into the assassination. So he was a very key man. I said, I can't do that. And they told me three times, you got to do it. Whatever he wants, we do. And I said, I'm not doing it. And so, you know, my term there with the firm was gone, was over, and I left, set up my own firm. Went through a fight with the Clark firm. His big connection, I think this is true, most of the big law firms, is they have a bank behind them, like he was chairman of the bank. <laughs> this gives you the right to do something important. If you have someone you don't like, unlike the godfather, you don't have to just kill them, but you call the note they, if they have one. So they called the note. I ended up in a big fight with them, uh, with um, the bank that did it. Uh, ultimately, the bank went into uh, reorganization, which meant I couldn't sue them anymore. And everything was thrown out um, a few years later. And that's when I started investigating uh, what I knew about the Clark firm and the, and the assassination. Um, at this point, this was in 94, I started working with some other researchers and decided to redo uh, some of the work the Warren Commission had done just to see how bad it was, and we uncovered fingerprints from a fellow who had killed for Johnson back in 1950. And we had his prints there in the local um, uh, police office and hired... Uh, and, well, we didn't hire him. He was willing to make the study blind, but as a as a as a, as a study, uh, philosophical, um, and he made a match to this fellow named Mac Wallace, 
to uh, a fingerprint that was recovered on the sixth floor of the um, school book depository in Dallas. Um, and this, as far as I was concerned, was, again, uh, really good evidence uh, to go forward with what I knew uh, had happened. And it was presented in due course and um, is in the book with a discussion of how it made the case for what I knew and could present uh, in a book. Why do you think that 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 kind of evidence wasn't used? Well, the print evidence is a specific and good example. They brought in two really top-notch handwriting experts to prove that Oswald was there. And at the last minute, one of the lawyers working with the Warren Commission said, hey, wait a minute, we have a whole lot more fingerprints we've recovered and we haven't identified them. Somebody's going to say there's a conspiracy. So they did this super rapid-fire analysis and ended up with uh, two unidentified prints, and a, a palm print and a fingerprint. And when we could go back over it and could see the mistakes that had been made, uh, the identification could be made that it matched to this fellow, Mac Wallace, who had killed four Johnson, like I say, back in 1950. Uh, he did it again in 61, but that's another, another part of the story here, really. Anyway, Warren moved too fast, and the crime scene they analyzed um, has been reanalyzed and reanalyzed and uh, to, to, to the point where it's very difficult to get solid evidence. I mean, people are going to say, well, we know there was a fourth bullet because there was a tree branch here and it got nicked. How do they know that? How can they be so sure? This is the kind of, and speculation is the only way to describe it, uh, that the Warren Commission made to prove there was only one shooter. Um, They were blind to anything else because, as as I mentioned earlier, they said, hey, uh, this is not a banana republic here in Washington. Well, like I said, it was back in Texas. Anyway, um, they missed so much or they pushed things so hard uh, to make them fit their theory like the single bullet. I mean, that is just about as impossible as you can get. Um, the head snap, the head shot on, when President Kennedy was hit in the head, he goes backwards. And they said it came from behind him. Well, it had to go forward if it hit him from behind. I mean, that's just the nature of bullets. They go forward. They don't bounce around and go back. They also had, um, and this one I just, it maybe makes the point you, answers the point you asked better than anything. They said, well, um, Oswald was the marksman. (laughs) I have a friend. He's a former Marine. He said, if you're a marksman, you're one step above being flushed out of the service because you can't shoot straight. <laughs> so it was this kind of thing. They just construed everything, misconstrued everything. And it's where I said they never could have made a case beyond a reasonable doubt, which they should have been able to do if they'd listened to and seen what they were doing and have looked beyond, uh, looked for the guy in the Banana Republic, Johnson, they would have found something very, um, very different. 
the way I put it in my in uh, my my sequel to the first book, which title is, is Verdict, um, is that they they didn't look at Johnson and. First thing you look for in any criminal investigation is motive. Who had the biggest motive? Just to know it. And they didn't. What they did, though, on the other hand, I mean, they did that to protect the president. On the other hand, they did a huge disservice to the one who suffered the most, and that was John Kennedy. If they had taken a look at um, Qui Bono and Qui Malo, who benefited, who lost. It would have been an entirely different analysis, I believe. What do you think that they did that? Like, what was the purpose of them doing this? Was it just to resolve it quickly and let American life go on? Or was it on purpose? They wanted to cover up for Johnson? Well, you know, Alan, I think there's a lot of ways you can look at it because so many people were involved. I think what you just said is is right. Uh, there were many in Washington who didn't want to face the fact that it might be a conspiracy and it might involve the government. Everyone knew what a bad guy Johnson was. I mean, they had three Senate investigations going on uh, on the day of the assassination. They were supposed to kick off um, the following following Monday. They all got buried. They couldn't name the successor president. They couldn't even consider it. And there were those who knew, uh, I'll give you a good example, Senator John Williams of Delaware. He was pressing hard and fought to the bitter end to keep the investigations going. But he was just one man left. It was this thing we had to protect the country. Uh, the rumor gets out, oh, there's going to be a, a war because this might be Cuba and Russia working together. Um, and there was this fear. In fact, that's kind of the fear of a nuclear war that impressed uh, the Chief Justice Warren to take the job. And Johnson pushed him hard on that point. Um, but to make it just one man, uh, you know, one gunner, uh, one sniper was very, very important to keep it from spreading to and they didn't know where it could go, but they had a pretty good idea that Johnson just might turn up among the, uh, shall we say, usual suspects. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I look at it back at it now. It seems pretty obvious, but you know. Uh, so what was he trying? What were they trying to investigate him for? He had been working with uh, Bobby Baker as his best buddy. Uh, who had been his secretary in the Senate and had arranged everything like um, Senate hearings, uh, extra clothes for a senator who might have to stay over for a vote, um, women for whoever might need them at the uh, quorum club in the congressional hotel across the street from the Capitol. <laughs> Bobby Baker was very important to him. And um, when... Johnson had become president when, when when he became vice president, he that ended. But Bobby Baker stayed there, and he did a few things that were going to be investigated. And there was the thinking that the fear that some of this that Bobby Baker had done earlier would land on uh, Johnson's lap. The specific one 
uh, he had arranged advertising on Johnson's TV back in Austin, his TV station, the one I had a program on. <laughs> anyway, they had arranged uh, advertising there, and there was a kickback. It was a kickback for everything Johnson did. He took a commission on everything. Uh, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a sec. But that was one thing that was going to land on Johnson's lap, and they just couldn't have it. There was another one. I mentioned this fellow, Mac Wallace, whose print was identified. We had identified on being on uh, being on the sixth floor, and he had murdered a man in 1950 on behalf of Johnson because his Johnson's sister was getting involved in a sex circle in Austin. And this was right after Johnson had stole the 48 election. Everybody in the state was getting ready to run against him. Well, they couldn't let any scandal show up. So Wallace goes in and just shoots this fellow, Henry Kinsler, Kinsler, just shoots him dead four times in this little shop he had, a little putt-putt golf shop. And he gets off with a five-year suspended sentence, which is another part of the Banana Republic. But again, I'm, I'm kind of jumping around here, but what I'm getting back to is Wallace uh, was involved with this fellow named Billy Saul Estes, who had been involved with Johnson ever since right after the 48 election. Johnson had his sights then. I mean, he was moving up, and he needed money. And one of his friends, Billy Saul Estes, was really good at raising money and making it work. Uh, he raised a lot of money for uh, Johnson, and again, the commission applied 10% kickback on federal money that was given to, to Estes um, to go back to Johnson. Well, in the course of things, these crimes <laughs> surfaced, and an investigator for the um, Department of Agriculture was going hard and strong after Estes, which meant he was going to uncover Johnson. Johnson has a meeting with Wallace and Estes in Washington on inauguration week. I mean, John Kennedy has been inaugurated. It's his week. And Johnson knows this um, investigation is coming to a head. And so he meets, and, 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 and this is well established. He tells uh, Wallace, go talk to him. Tell him we're going to give him a better job in Washington and to drop this case. We don't, if we don't do it, then he's got to go, quote, unquote. Um, and I can say that because the uh, investigator, a fellow named Clint Peoples, who was a Texas Ranger and U.S. Marshal, um, recorded it um, from what Estes was telling him. So here's this Wallace has taken Marshall out to his ranch, Marshall's ranch, telling him to get out of it, and he won't get out of it. So they kill him. <laughs> well, first of all, they hit him aside the head with this. Wallace was pretty, could get pretty um, angry when he wanted to knock him out. So they said, ah, we can now fake it a suicide. We'll put a plastic bag over his head, turn on his pickup, and run the exhaust by it. Well, that got started, but then they heard a car driving around in the neighborhood out on this ranch. You know, you could hear it off in the distance, and so they had to stop. We've got to move quicker. So they laid him out on the uh, seat of the pickup, shot him five times in the stomach. Now, he was unconscious, probably, when this was happening. Five times. It was a bolt-action rifle that you had to, you know, bolt and rebolt for every bullet you fired. And three of the five shots were fatal. 
So somehow, Henry Marshall was able to shoot himself at least two times after he was dead. <laughs> Johnson, because of his control, was able to get, um, uh, through Clark, was able to get the sheriff to say, suicide. Well, and before they could do anything else, they buried him. So, case closed, suicide. <laughs> and that's the way it looked for about a year. But then Estes, and again, as these things fester, you know, they kind of get to boiling. He gets indicted. And he rushes to Johnson for help, and Johnson won't speak to him, even though Johnson had said, hey, look, you know, this is okay to do this commission back to you, back to me. Um, and if you ever get any trouble, I'll help you. One lie after another. Anyway, that was coming back to a head. That was brewing in the background as an investigation um, in 1963, just before the assassination. So it was this kind of thing that was uh, hitting Johnson hard, threatening him. Um, and the rumor was out that Kennedy was going to drop him. Yeah, well, yeah, I heard that. Bomb. Yeah. If he gets dropped, he no longer has the immunity that goes with the presidency, or well, he thought he had. That that was that's a that's an open question, legal question still. But he thought he had the immunity of the president because he was vice president. Maybe so, but anyway, he was very afraid that he would be dropped, and all this would just land on his desk or land on his <laughs> um, back, and. He was facing either the White House, he was one heartbeat away, as the old saying goes, or it was the jailhouse. And these kind of things will, will, will motivate you to do things, well, that aren't legal. But again, what does Johnson worry about legal? He had Texas covered through his good buddy back in Austin named Ed Clark. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of laughing here and it's not funny don't misunderstand me no. but how grown men could get away with this is incredible and yet he was able to do it subject tonight is the jfk assassination our guest bar mccullen and we'll be back right after these words now i'd also heard that uh that you know normally that did kennedy was not going to use them in the next term but also when he um, was initially running, when they were in the 1960 Democratic Convention, that um, Kennedy was going to have Stuart Symington be his running mate. That is very much the case. Uh, Johnson, of course, they'd been going at it pretty hard. Johnson had raised uh, some questions about John Kennedy's health, and this was kind of a forbidden subject back in those days and um, Bobby Kennedy was particularly angry uh, from this happening during the uh, during the campaign for the Democratic nomination and John Kennedy was considering uh, two or three others but I think any any candidates gonna have a you know have a list and um, be one to pick from one or the other but a lot of pressure all of a sudden came up after John Kennedy was selected to turn to Lyndon Johnson to be sure and get the Southern vote, and um, Johnson, because of his <clears throat> excuse me, because of his background, uh, he was racist. Let's just, I mean, I'm just flat say it. He he did nothing important to help African Americans 
even while he was Senate Majority Leader. I mean, perfect example, the NAACP was formed for one reason, and that was to cut out the lynchings in the South. And they begged Johnson all the time, he was Majority Leader and even before, to support a bill to make it a federal crime. He wouldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And it really, when you stop and think on something like that, that is awful. And so you have Johnson kind of a natural vote for the Southern vote. And he was powerful. He, Johnson, in, 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 in forming his campaign for the Democratic nomination, had decided on getting the South as a block and then mountain states that he could pick up, he figured, from his Western, um, Western background. Well, that was important for John Kennedy, too. And so with Johnson, it would add um, support in those states. And then it became uh, some very top-notch, very powerful men at the convention, Sam Rayburn, who was Speaker of the House, and a couple of others convincing John Kennedy to pick Lyndon Johnson. Now, this this was more than anything Bobby Kennedy could take, and he tried to get the decision reversed, but he couldn't. And so uh, this, this tension between the two men, the two, the president and the vice president, can be traced back to that. And, of course, Bobby uh, Kennedy was right there uh, in the middle of it, and he was no friend of Johnson's. Like, okay, so Johnson wasn't going to be used... Um, probably the next term. He was worried about prosecution. Um, was that the primary reasons behind the JFK assassination, you think? I don't think it was the primary reason at all. I think it was been brewing, and, and, and you can trace it back to, again, some evidence we have of planning uh, for the assassination going back to Sam Rayburn's funeral a year, two years before the assassination. Um, this Mac Wallace enlisted, uh, well, he got a, a Native American from Oklahoma who was there at Sam Rayburn's funeral, a guy named Roy Factor, got him interested in uh, shooting and uh, went to see him, see if he could take a, a long shot and how good he was. And uh, they went to this Roy Factor's home and had him make a practice shot. So this was two years before uh, the actual assassination, it was being planned, and if you really wanted to trace it back, it was it probably started uh, when Henry Marshall, uh, the agriculture agent, was killed and um, killed by Mac Wallace. They had to be ready by they at Clark, and he had to know that he had something in place in case it came to a head. And it did come to a head a year after the Marshall killing when they indicted uh, Billy Saul Estes. And that's when it started getting serious. So it wasn't that, you know, Johnson had all of a sudden found out that he might be dropped, uh, even though that rumor was floating around pretty actively uh, that week before they go to Dallas. Um, so it, it, it's this accumulation thing. Back to what you asked about earlier, what kind of person was Lyndon Johnson? Well, sociopath works. <laughs> he was ready to do anything uh, to become president. So then he so he became president. Um, now, the next term, when it came up, he actually withdrew, didn't he? He didn't run in 68. 
Right, and he couldn't. And um, this is a real interesting thing between the two men, Johnson and Clark, because Clark never forgave him for not running. Clark needed him. Uh, and this goes into uh, what came out later, uh, getting the bonus that Clark was able to commandeer uh, after the assassination. Um, he had to have it with Johnson in there for another four years because he was going to make that much more money. And um, Johnson, though, um, had reached a point, I, the best I can describe this is, where this depression thing was coming back, the war was not going right. Johnson had been given this utter and complete power to, to wage nuclear war if he wanted to. I mean, this was when the Viet, uh, Vietnam uh, uh, ordinance was first passed, to go into Vietnam, defend America. Extraordinary power. And we built up to half a million men in Vietnam kept building up, building up, building up to win the war. And it was at the point where this power needed to be used, and Johnson couldn't. There was no way they were going to, the military or, or his advisors were going to let that happen. So you have this background, I guess, uh, and it just added to his depression. And he, as, as depressed people will do, kind of give it up. Um, and and now, too much, yeah. And do you think the CIA was involved with this as well? Oh yeah. Uh, what's happened? Uh, back to my my first book, Blood Money, Blood Money and Power. When it came out, it was kind of like going to court, and you lay it on the table, and you say, "Here's the charges against you. Now answer them." Well, I heard a lot of answers. <laughs> And a lot of them were pretty critical. I mean, I, I, at one point there, I felt I'd been both uh, 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 firestormed and, and, and waterboarded. Um, but I had a lot of support, too. And some of the support came from insiders who could identify the CIA that was involved. Now, in the history of uh, the investigations, the official ones in Washington, the House Special Committee on on the assassination concluded there was a conspiracy and that probably rogue agents of the CIA were involved, but they didn't know who they were. Well, this is another part of the story, and it really it, it, this is going to get more interesting. I mean, Alan, some of the names that come up, I mean, Trigger Jones and a few others are, well, unusual. The Smuggler's Hole is where... <laughs> Uh, the history really uh, involves the CIA that I've um, been told about, the history. Uh, the Smuggler's Hole is a little place down on uh, down in a little town called Eagle Pass, and it's, it was the main road between Spain and Texas for many years, and Mexico and Texas later, of course. And um, it was where the smugglers could go through and not pay anything, you know, free entry. Well, they started using that in when Cuba fell uh, through this fellow named um, Robert Bibb and his father had been in Cuba when um, Teddy Roosevelt took his Rough Riders down there and he got a contract to export uh, deer, deer tractors um, 
to uh, Cuba. And they did it through the smuggler's hole. Well, now, you know, they didn't go out at night and just go through this, this low-water crossing. But because he was director of the um, port, director of the border, you know, he could say, go on through, you know, even though it was forbidden uh, at one point, well, after uh, after Castro took over and after the Bay of Pigs to export weapons. Um, and this guy, Robert Bibb, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta understand now, I'm, I'm covering a lot of ground here, <laughs> was a roommate with Lyndon Johnson when he was in college. They were the best of friends and stayed that way. And Bibb helped, uh, JFK and arranged the honeymoon for him and Jackie in Acapulco. Um, big friend, close friend, guy able to do things. Well, there were four men involved in this smuggling operation. Um, and um, what they did um, was keep on moving weapons, and they were bringing drugs back, and they got the mafia involved in it. But they got caught. And they got caught and charged after Lyndon Johnson left office because his his power to pardon pardon was no longer there and they were all indicted in New Orleans they were a fellow named Richard Harper and a Murray Kiesler a um, Barry Seal very famous guy in the, in the assassination research and a Mar- Marion Hagler well one was on the board of the bank in Eagle Pass the Bibb Bank um, Barry Seal had been involved with the CIA as a, as a pilot all those for many years um all of the so-called rogue CIA agents were involved in the smuggling operation. Um, and when they were charged, they were defended by Ed Clark. Now, I mean, I don't know how much more of a circle you want to make, but here's where I was getting at earlier. This was all brought to my attention because this fellow named Jack Worthington came to see me. Just came to see me. Like I, say, I, didn't, I didn't go out digging up this information. It was just coming in the door um, Jack Worthington was told by his mother that John Kennedy was his father now Jack looks a lot like John Kennedy and um, the case was presented to uh, ABC and to a couple of other media outlets in New York and Jack asked him if you can establish that I am that John Kennedy was my father you know, a very important question for us guys. We need to know who our fathers were, was. And um, they agreed, the media agreed, okay, we'll do what we can to find a connection and we'll keep it secret unless we make the story and can bring it out and answer your question. Well, ABC was one of them, and they apparently reportedly stole some DNA somehow and uh, the Kennedy or Ted Kennedy at the time found out about it and he put the quietus on he said you're not saying anything about that or I'll own you um, so the magazine kept up with study ABC dropped out uh, looking for an honest way to find DNA and they weren't having any luck until about a year after their investigation had started and they call Jack and say, we've got it. We're sending down a, 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 a 
private investigator protection. We've hired a media guy. We're getting ready to break it. I'll get back to you in a week. Well, in that time, they called Ted Kennedy, and he told them the same thing. If you bring this out, I'll own you. They dropped it. In dropping it, they were very unfair to Jack. But where Jack fit in, he could tell me uh, about both sides here because his mother was a bib. This tied it right into the little smuggler's hole and the, the rogue CIA agents. And you have this picture then that has emerged of a couple of CIA agents working with <clears throat> Mac Wallace, who, who was being directed by Ed Clark, putting together uh, a plan excuse me, to um, assassinate the president. It was a very close thing. It wasn't something that was announced at a board of directors at the CIA or anything. It was some rogue agents, like the House Special Committee said, and they um, worked with and were enlisted by Wallace and Clark to tie it in even further. (laughs) Are you, Alan, are you with me? I'm covering a lot of ground <laughs> yeah, here, but no, I'm bringing I, you all back to this this little little CIA point of contact. Yeah, no, I'm there. There was, right. a, <laughs> <laughs> there was this guy, George de Mornshield, yes. He was a friend of Oswald's. He also spent time <laughs> with the Bibbs in Eagle Pass. And so if you need connection, I, I had earlier established a connection through Clark to Oswald because one of my clients had been a fellow who owned a small pipeline up in up in the Texas panhandle. And um, so we, there, there was a, a sort of a connection there, but now it is strong because uh, this George de Morenshield was the fellow that uh, uh, took Oswald under his wing. He was a, he was a former Russian. And... Um, tried to get him jobs. He was also working in the oil fields, and surely that's what brought him down to Eagle Pass. So you have this fellow, Robert Bibb, who was a county judge at the time. His brother was the business manager of the the Bibb family in Eagle Pass. And um, you can see how all the connections could be put together. And this planning, like I say, that started... uh, what was it, two years, uh, we know it was underway two years before the assassination, um, could be built up. And it didn't have to be, uh, hey, you want to shoot the president? We've been approved by the CIA, their board of directors. It was all strictly off the cuff with people they knew they could trust not to talk. And that's who they could find through these many contacts uh, out in the woods, so to speak, and 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 bring together a team. Uh, for example, this Loy Factor that they enlisted, and he said, "Oh yeah, I'm, I'll shoot somebody. Meet me in Dallas." He shows up there on the twenty second. We want you to shoot the president. <laughs> he left. He wasn't going to have anything to do with it, but he didn't know about it until that day. And so I think the the, the story you can put together, the history you can put together, is that um, they had to. The group together, and they had enough who were committed, and you could leave Oswald then, as what he said he was, a patsy, and you could leave Loy Factor there to be another patsy, but he bowed out and left. 
It all ties together. Uh, you uh, asked about the CIA being involved. Yeah. Yes, they were. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, do they have their own reasons as well? Do you think? Like, I mean, because I, I, if some of the people I've talked to now said that there was they were running uh, drugs out of Laos and Vietnam, and that was, uh, and they didn't want Kennedy to shut them down, and uh, Kennedy wanted to kind of take apart the CIA. I don't think it was the drugs as much as it was the Bay of Pigs. The CIA had put together that uh, effort to overthrow Castro. And uh, if you remember back then, Robert Kennedy said we're not sending American airplanes in to support uh, the freedom fighters in the Bay of Pigs. And, of course, uh, the Cuban uh, army uh, was able to overwhelm them. Um, so the CIA blamed John Kennedy for that, and that was a real grievance for some of them. In fact, the one that I have most closely involved, most closely identified, corroborated, is a fellow named David Morales, and he was in charge of the CIA, um, shall we say, dark side <laughs> operation, <laughs> including including the, the Bay of Pigs operation. But the drugs were there. Don't misunderstand me. That's how you could bring the mafia in, because one of the uh, agents on the, uh, of these four that were identified that were involved with the bank in Eagle Pass one of them was um, a mafia representative, and they were moving drugs. Now, I mean, that was another problem they had and, and, and why they ended up indicted. And, and so have you talked to any of the Kennedy family or anybody on that side, and, or, or if you heard anything about what they figure about this? Yeah, I have, and, and I mean, that was... Um, I don't know how to kind of put it. I get kind of emotional over this because I admired Kennedy very much. Uh, I mean, you can talk about Camelot and all, and yes, he did a good job. He was a very good man, and he had some wonderful ideas, and he set the nation on the right track, something we're still doing to, thanks to decisions he made. And so I was very, um, I was a great admirer of John Kennedy. And... Um, when I started my investigation, when my book came out, it's when I started getting calls from the Kennedys. One of them was this fellow, um, Wilson Gathings, who was a Kennedy through uh, Jackie, Jackie's side of the family. Uh, a couple of more call and tell me how something needs to be done. Uh, one of them was the historian for the Kennedy family, really, who lived in Florida and... Um, it was back when we were looking for the DNA, and she said, well, I have two things that you might could use. One was um, an <clears throat> identification card John Kennedy used in the Pacific when he was, you know, in the, in the Navy there. And um, it was too too far, you know, too far back to, to be able to use. They also said, I also have the gown in which he was christened. And my first question was, how many times has it been washed? Well... Twice, and that was twice too many. It was that kind of contact. But the biggest contact in the Kennedy side was this lady, Megazani, who had dated John Jr., who had had breakfast with Jackie, who had heard Jackie, uh, who, who Meg said she mentioned John Kennedy, I mean, Lyndon Johnson once, and there was silence, dead silence, for at least a minute. Jackie wasn't going to talk to him or allow him to be mentioned. And then Jackie resumed the conversation, not talking about Johnson at all. 
make sure she's wrong, never talk about that. I mean, she could tell me things from in, deep inside the Kennedy family, like Jackie could tell how she once told um, a fellow at a banquet that when the assassination happened, she almost lost her mind. I mean, it, it, you can't imagine how horrible it was for that person sitting right there, uh, looking at her husband, and his head explodes. And she does all she can to help him. I mean, this is huge courage for for Jackie to have been able to do these things. Um, but Meg also had another deep, deep insight into the Kennedy family because she was dating John Kennedy Jr. And she was with him when they had a um, uh, one of the hearings at the House Special Committee. And John wrote a poem. He drafted a poem. This was a little Kennedy thing. When they were together, they'd write poems to each other. It was, I guess, a little a literary foundation for the family or something. <laughs> but he wrote a little poem, and he called it The Penitent Society. And he was struggling. I mean, he was 16, 17 at the time. And, um, but he was trying to get America to say that it was a horrible assassination and it was a conspiracy and we need a penitent nation, someone to take steps to right the wrong. Um, that's the first written evidence uh, that came out of my contacts with the Kennedys. But she could also tell me how he um, took on himself uh, a quest and the quest was to find who killed his father. And when he had his magazine, George, in the 70s, um, that was his whole ambition. It was in the 80s, I'm sorry, in the 80s. And uh, um, he was deciding to be, to run for president so he could get deep inside again and find out what had really happened. And, of course, the tragedy was that he died in that plane uh, crash off of, um, you know, up in Massachusetts near right. the Kennedy home. Yeah. So it was this kind of contact I did have with the Kennedys, and it was really heartwarming. And, and we stop them, like I'm doing right now, and think about. It. I mean, you get real emotional about. Because I didn't call anybody. I was not about to call them. And this was, you know, such a horrible thing that it was not something I could I could speak to them anyway. Uh, of course, I didn't I didn't really go out and dig up evidence anywhere. It was coming to me, and uh, this was part of the history that I got from from what I would say are really key members of the family. Oh, and, and, and one other thing, Meg had written a book about it, mainly about her relations with John, Jr., and um, she knew Caroline real well. Uh, it was part of the family. I mean, she was there with John, Jr. in, in, in the uh, uh, apartment they had there on Fifth Avenue in New York, and they were friends, and Meg told Caroline, well, first of all, about my book, and Kennedy, uh, Caroline had written a little note on that. Should we be interested in this? Well, this was note was written back in 2005. Ten years later, she was still interested. Meg went to Caroline, and Caroline said, write your book. I'm not going to take a stand on it one way or another. Very important, because the Kennedys had uniformly um, avoided any public appearance that they believed there was a conspiracy. But again, you come deep inside these families, deep inside this fog of history, and you get the story, the yeah. history. Yeah. So now, do you think 
this has obviously um, changed the world and uh, changed uh, changed America. Do you, do, you, do you think this could happen today in the same sort of way? I do indeed, and, and you really ask a really good question. Uh, a lot of people think it's just a matter of digging into the crime scene and figuring out what happened or speculating on who was doing what when they don't know some of the things I was able to find. They said, about they, let me, let me put it this way, when Kennedy was assassinated and they had the funeral, you know, this magnificent funeral in his memory in Washington, and the Warren Commission comes along and does a, does a very bad job, you don't get closure. It's a, it's a, it's a, any family goes through it. They have to have some kind of closure to know what happened and to believe it. They couldn't believe the Warren Commission. That's why 80% of America at one point had nothing to do with uh, Warren. I think it's dropped down to 65 now, but there's still a big number that are uncertain, you know, willing to, to, to learn what the history really is. Um, so when you have this bad feeling, it, 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 it keeps going. Uh, Carter referred to a malaise. The way I look at it, um, it was it became banal. That is, corruption became acceptable. The banality of corruption was okay, and it has just gotten worse and worse. And so, what part of my book is is to, to take a few steps to change that. And the biggest one, in fact, I may be releasing it here as part of an advance part out out of the book in the next few weeks, is a proposal for a code of conduct so that federal employees will be committed to service. In other words, what John, what Kennedy really highlighted in his um, in his inaugural address, you know, ask not what you can, your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, service. And that means um, making sure that everybody discloses everything, um, that federal employees can't lie. And here's an interesting thing here. A few people know this, but we can't lie to the federal government. If a federal agent asks us something, we've got to tell them the truth, or we could be indicted, and many people have been. But they can lie to us all the time. Yeah. I think we need a little bit of equality of purpose here. They can't lie. We can't lie. We need them to be um, not committed to any political party, nonpartisan. We need to be sure that they're fair to us, and none of them should be able to make a fortune uh, to do what Johnson did or he ended up with nothing, yeah. but had at the end of it all a state worth eighty million dollars. Uh, you can't uh, you can't prosper. You got to disclose it, and you can't if you want to make money. You can't do it in service to the government. You can go out in the private economy and make all the you know, make whatever money you think you can make. So I think that and these are the four points here in this in this uh, proposal to try and bring us out of what I call the banality of corruption, which is. Well, which has gotten worse, in my opinion, and I think it reflects what you were asking. Um, yeah, it was a, a very bad event in, in, in American history, and it hadn't gotten any better, and something needs to be done. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, um, the, the government is not working for the people anymore. It's amazing how it's not, too, and how it's so open and obvious, and yet 
people just seem to sit back and say, it's okay. Politicians, we know they're corrupt. Uh, we have to live with it. Yeah. I don't think we have to live with it. No, I know. I, it's sort of... Uh uh, that's what I mean by I, that's why I get disheartened when I look back at the times of the 60s where people took more um, pride in what was going on I think pride is a good word be very proud of what we were doing you know, yeah we could we need to get back to that oh yeah I agree so now for whatever happened to Johnson just uh, one last how, how did he, his life end well, it was um, a real massive depression uh, when he left the White House. And he was concerned, of course, about protecting his his legacy, but his legacy was shot. And um, they built a uh, library for him, but then he gave up, literally, and started smoking again and all. But he also... How, and a measure of how he ended up. There is one small monument to him in in, New, in Washington. There won't be any more. And how else did he end up? Well, back in Texas, they made the um, uh, his ranch a, a monument site. Visitors open and all. Very few people go there. More people go to the sixth floor or to Dallas to the site of the assassination far more than ever dream of going to see anything about Johnson, even in Texas. So I'd say his legacy, um, well, it ended up where it should be. Um, he doesn't have a legacy, really. And the question becomes, what do you do about it? And um, in all my working on this, given some pretty... I won't say deep thought or anything, but giving a lot of thought to it. <laughs> it's pretty apparent. That it's just it is such a high drama uh, that goes back to uh, some of the Greek dramas and some of the Shakespearean dramas with those same things coming out and the good guys um, are identified, the bad guys are identified, and the bad guys lose. Um it's probably too late now to really do much constructive about what Johnson did. Um, but we can surely move away from him. Well, I, yeah, definitely. And I, th- I think there'd be a big relief. I, you know, it still, it still holds in a lot of people's minds. Uh, it seems like still a lot of people don't believe Oswald did it. If he was a part of it, he was just used and uh it, it there's still there's still a huge amount of people that that uh would like a sense of i you know i don't want to use the word closure but just a sense of uh some truth on it i really think that's right and where i find it when i'm out talking uh, about it uh, um kids in high school now are a perfect example they would like to know what really happened and they have a real good idea of what really happened. But it needs to be, how can I say it, accepted. Yeah, that yeah. There are just a few people in Washington that refuse to accept it. And um, all I can say about them is, is they have not been very persuasive. <laughs> no. And so now the a lot of the um, files still aren't released, and they're not going to be for a number of years, right? Right. So, you know. That's 
see, and, and again, and, and you've really, you're really hitting hard on me here because that's <laughs> in the, that's in, in my sequel. We need, and I'm going to do it as a formal complaint to law enforcement that there are some things you need to find now. One of them is I'd like to see recover the um, penthouse records I mentioned earlier, uh, if they're still available. Um, Billy Saul Estes has some records that need to be recovered. Uh, there is one record of a tape he made in uh, a hotel in Austin where Johnson said, and Estes said he recorded it, uh, where Johnson said, uh, kill Kennedy. Um, and this is another little <laughs> quirk in Texas history. <laughs> Billy Salas just re- tried to record everything. He carried a little briefcase around. Of course, back in those days, they didn't have the little ones we have now. You had to have a, a, a bigger a bigger apparatus. Yeah. And uh, this ranger he worked with um, did the same thing. Uh, Clint Peoples, he would record everything. And, and the story goes that he and Billy Saul Estes, Peoples and Estes, would go out in the woods to talk to each other. <laughs> Both of them would record each other talking. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's you the see. kind of, so you're asked about evidence, that's the kind of evidence that's supposed, supposedly three copies of this tape. And, and, and we know people who've touched on it or know something about it, but we don't, I don't have subpoena power. No. You know, I can't go in there and I can't sneak in and, uh, or anything like that. But the FBI can. Yeah. And uh, the police department in Dallas can. Um, so, yes, we need to um, uh, bring out this evidence. And, again, you've got uh, some big files with the CIA that need to come out. So well, why isn't uh, it that they, don't, they, they won't release it? That's a real good question. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why, except you can say they don't want to uncover it. With the CIA, now, there, there is a special feature to their non-participation. They set up a, um, it was called a Project Mockingbird. They deny it exists. You know, we never did this. But back in 48, when they set up the CIA formally, uh, they had a fellow in charge of propaganda. Now, of course, CIA is supposed to operate only outside the United States. <laughs> they operated inside the United States, and they had some of the top newspapers working with them. The New York Times, CBS, all worked with them to tell the CIA story about what was happening in the Cold War and why it was important to the United States and what was happening in the United States that was important to the United States. And guess what they think is really important? That there was one guy doing the shooting of uh, Dealey Plaza on November 22nd. They were told to quit doing that. It happens every time somebody comes out with something new that the CIA will issue a statement. We didn't have anything to do with it. Here's why. Yes. <laughs> so you ask about you know how it can get stopped. It, it is, and, and we and we know how it's getting stopped yeah. by something, of course, that doesn't exist. Project Mockingbird. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's tell um, the listeners um, how they can get a hold of you if they want to talk to you or email you, and also uh, the books you have out and uh, how they can get them. 
Well, thank you very much. Uh, Barr McClellan, and I have the listing in Wikipedia, and you can uh, find out a lot there. I have, I'm a, I'm a business consultant in addition to doing the research here, and I have offices in New York and Princeton, and right now in Houston, too. Um, I'm staying busy. Our home is in Gulfport, though, Mississippi. And um, I'm pretty well, pretty well available. The first book, Blood, Money, and Power, is still out. It's still available, and it's still, it's been one of those selling items, word of mouth, and it just, it just keeps moving. It's out in um, soft cover also, and uh, Verdict, which is the sequel, is under contract, and we're trying to get it released on uh, May 29th, which is John Kennedy's birthday trying to get away from Dallas and uh, the assassination scene and turn to something that's more appropriate, I think. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're hoping to get it out. But in the meantime, there are going to be some uh, releases of parts of the book, and they'll be out on Facebook or by email. And I'm I'm open about this. I think, I think disclosure is very important. I said that, and i got to live by it, and I do. Uh, but I'm on uh, uh, on email. It's barmcclellan at att.net. And um, I try to respond to everything. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, it, you can get a lot sometimes. So, yeah, it takes time. Oh, and but we are coming out. Well, I'm, I've got the book right in front of me right now, JFK LBJ, which is uh, options that have been taken on the book and uh, by by producers in in Hollywood and um, there's seven treatments that I've worked up uh, but treatment is kind of an outline of how the scenes should go to tell the history and um, we want to get that out and invite people to participate in either questions or in suggestions for working up a, a, um, a little working script and that we're hoping to get out uh, well, maybe another month or two, but it, 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 like I say, it's sitting in front of me right now. Yeah, well, that sounds excellent. And and we'll post everything on our website as well as our Facebook and any links to you as well. And uh, look forward to talking to you again about uh, about Verdict and about uh, anything else you come up with. Well, thank you, Alan. I've, I've really enjoyed this because every time I, I go over it, it helps focus my thinking. And you have... I'm focused a lot better now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm glad I did something good. <laughs> oh, you did a lot good. Keep up the good work, and I hope to be back. Well, thank you. You will be, sure. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well... Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.